continue looking at the book of Romans with the grown-ups. So let me pray for the grown-ups too as we study the Bible together. Father, um, we ask for your spirit to shine light on your word. We ask for our hearts to be enlightened. I pray that any areas where we are wounded, you would heal us by your word. Any areas where we are scared, that you would encourage us. Any areas where we are lazy, that you would make us zealous and remind us of our first love. We ask for the transformation of your Holy Spirit to be like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, okay, so um, it's really going to help if you can see Romans 12. So if you've got access to a Bible, if you can reach a Bible, uh, it's a good time to uh, grab it now and turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're going to think about this passage that Paul writes about love. Uh, and we haven't talked very much on the book of Romans lately, so I want to briefly introduce this book to you in case it's been a while since you studied it. Romans is a letter that was written by Paul to the church in Rome. And Paul wrote it before he'd ever met those Christians in Rome, but he knew that the church there was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and it was having some unique struggles as to how Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians should relate to each other and live together as one united family. So really one of the main reasons Paul wrote the book of Romans was to address that specific problem, how Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians should relate as one united family. And Paul did it by going back to the beginning and back to the gospel. He laid out the full gospel from the beginning, the full Christian message with all of its implications for everyone. And Romans is the most theologically rich and systematically organized book in the whole New Testament that talks about what Jesus has done. And it's simply magnificent. And Romans has been a world-changing letter several times over. It has influenced some of the church's greatest minds at key moments in world history. Um, so it's a great letter, and I, and I hope we get the chance to teach a lot more of it uh, coming up soon. But um, today we're just looking at chapter 12. When we look at the whole letter of Romans, we can roughly break it into two parts, all right, very, very simply. Uh, chapters 1 through 11, Paul asks the question, what has God done through Jesus? And then in chapters 12 through 16, he asks, now what shall we do in response to, to what God's done in Jesus? So if you glance back at the end of chapter 11 in your Bibles, you can find a really good one sentence summary of Paul's answer to that first question. It's there in verse 32. So what has God done through Jesus? Paul concludes that God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And in that word all here, Paul means specifically both Jews and Gentiles without distinction. All right, so that's the kind of conclusion of his gospel message, that God's going to have mercy on all. And at this point, Paul reaches such a height of passion as he concludes his 11-chapter exposure of the gospel that he just cries out in passion in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. 
Amen. So I really wanted to start our study in Romans 12 in that note of passion and glory that Paul comes to at the end of chapter 11, because everything that flows out in the rest of the book flows out of that rich gospel soil and the passion for God that the gospel of Jesus has created in his heart. So we don't uh, do things for God for any other reason than what God has first done for us. So then Paul appeals to the church for how we should respond. And this is at the beginning of chapter 12. Paul says that as a response, we are to present our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice, to stop conforming to the pattern of this world, which does not know God, and instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then skipping ahead to verse 9, the key mark of that transformation, Paul says, is love is love and that should not be a surprise at all uh, of course it's no surprise that the big idea of the christian life is love uh, that's what god most wants for us and most wants to see in us is love and we've talked about that many times before um, but the surprise i've been facing right now in this season is not how important love is but it's how hard love is um, and maybe you're discovering the same thing. I'm learning that love is still quite foreign to my natural inclinations even now, and that it's a very costly thing to keep on loving people. So the encouragement that I've gained from studying Paul this week is that that's not at all a surprise to him. Uh, Paul says, of course, love is costly, um, but of course, it's worth it. So the three things I want to draw out of Romans 12 today are first, that love is embattled. Second, that love is costly. But then third, that love is victorious. So then first, love is embattled. And when we think about what kind of situation Paul is writing into in chapter 12, it really seems to be a time of war. All right. So look at the verses. We're looking at verses 9 through 21 of Romans chapter 12, which is it's all about love. Um, and uh, the section begins and ends by talking about evil. So in verse 9, Paul says, abhor what is evil. And then in verse 21, at the end of the chapter, he concludes, do not be overcome by evil. And then again, in the middle, in verse 17, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. So if this is a passage about love, then there's a striking amount of evil going on in it. Um, he also says in verse 12, he calls them to be patient in tribulation. In verse 14, he calls them to bless those who persecute you. And in verse 19, to never avenge yourselves. So Paul's never met these people that he's writing to, but he expects that they're having a rough time. He's writing to them as if they're at war, experiencing daily evil, daily reasons to be angry at their neighbors and to want vengeance and to want to curse the people around them. They're in no kind of happy, peaceful paradise are they so paul is calling them to hold on to love even though the world is hating them and even though it hates them because of the way that they love and even though the problem is inside the church as well as outside of it and this is clear in this passage too because um, Paul says in verse 16, he instructs the Christians to live in harmony with one another. And when he talks about one another language, that always means Christian to Christian inside the church. And then Paul goes straight on to tell those same people inside the church not to be haughty. And then in verse 17, not to repay 
evil for evil. So Paul doesn't expect that all the problems and all the enemies are outside of the church. He's fully aware that there are going to be problems on the inside too. But he calls these Christians to stand firm and to love people both inside and outside the Christian community, even though their love is embattled from both the outside and also from the inside. Paul calls them back again and again to this priority of love. So if we look at the Greek in this section of Romans, uh, Paul uses pretty much every way there is in Greek to talk about love. So in verse 9, he starts with, let love be genuine, and that's agape, the self-giving love, like the love of God. Then in verse 10, he says, love one another, that's philostorgoi, which is parental or family love. And then at the end of that same verse, he uses the term brotherly love, which is Philadelphia, like the city, it means brotherly love. Um, and then verse 13, the word for hospitality is philozenia, which is from the Greek word xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. We get our English word xenophobia from that. We only ever use it negatively. But the Greeks had a positive word, philozenia, the love of the stranger. Uh, and that's what we translate as hospitality in verse 13. Um, so pretty much all of the Greek words for love are here in this passage. And so are many of the verbs that describe the main actions of love. So we've got showing honor in verse 10, service in verse 11, prayer in verse 12, sharing resources in verse 13, blessing in verse 14, and empathizing in verse 15. So although love is embattled in every way, Paul is commanding the saints here to cling to love in every way, All right? So that's the first point that love is embattled. Now, second, let's think about the costliness of this love, that love is costly. So uh, even for Christians who have received the love of God in Jesus Christ poured into our hearts, it's going to be a struggle to hold on to this main thing. I think is the message here. It's going to be a struggle. So if you think about Paul's twofold command in verse nine, he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Thanks, Taylor. He's put it up on the screen for us. That's verse nine. Um, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So those two verbs, abhor and hold fast. Let's think about those. They're both extremely intense and emphatic. Uh, so abhor means to treat with utter disgust and contempt, like a festering maggot-ridden corpse. Get it out of my sight. And to hold fast means to cling to or stick to like glue. It's the word that Jesus uses when he says a man will cleave to his wife. When he's talking about marriage and quoting from Genesis 2. And Paul states both of these phrases as commands, doesn't he? Which means that they're not going to come naturally to us, even uh, having been saved and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be natural for us to abhor what is evil or hold fast to what is good. We're not naturally going to hate evil and find it disgusting. We're much more likely to find it kind of appealing even now. And we're not naturally going to treasure good above all things. We might instead find ourselves feeling pretty cool toward it. So the image that this twofold command evokes is that evil is always going to be pressing in on us, crowding around us, looking for a way in, and it will stream into us with the tiniest invitation. But at the same time, good is like an elusive maiden, always looking for a moment to slip away unnoticed and ready to flee from us if we briefly loosen our hold on her. So Paul's words demand effort, with one hand to aggressively drive evil back, and with the other hand to forcefully draw good in and hold on to her. 
Um, and there's also plenty of effort involved in the words of verse 11. So Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. That means never be lacking in energy or never be lazy, never fall behind in our diligence. And he also says in the second part of the verse to be fervent in spirit. And that comes from the Greek word meaning to boil over, to bubble over like water. Paul calls us to always be bubbling hot in our service to the Lord. So notice in this passage the degree of effort that Paul expects. All of this is going to be expensive. We must face the reality of the costliness of God's way of love. So I'm going to open up my heart to you guys and share with you some of the journey that I've been on myself just in these past couple of weeks because I came to the point about two weeks ago when I fell into a sudden and severe depression so much so that I couldn't motivate to work at all and I totally wasted a whole day when I was supposed to be working and did nothing profitable in a whole day and on that day my loving wife sent me out to take a prayer walk and to do some business with God and to figure out what was going on in my heart so I did that and I I went out and took the walk for an hour um, but I basically had nothing to say to God and he seemed to have nothing to say to me and it was just a stony silence until right at the end and my heart just kind of exploded with anger and I said to God you know I don't think I like love at all love is nothing but a tax on my soul that demands and demands and never gives anything back and I am spent and I am done and I just want to go and be selfish with the rest of my life and never love anybody again. And God said, thank you. You're finally beginning to understand it. And I realized that without knowing it, that I'd fallen into a very transactional view of love, a very economic view of it, of costs and benefits. And when during COVID the costs rose and the benefits fell, when there was no more rejoicing with those who rejoice and only always weeping with those who weep, I was ready to quit and get out of the market. But then I saw that that view of love was just totally upside down. It was completely wrong-headed because love done for economic reasons was really done for myself in the end. And love done for myself was really not love at all. And I saw that God loves and loves every day. He pours out his heart on the world and it's not for himself at all. I can't really speak to whether God gets anything back from all his love day after day. Maybe he does. Maybe the souls that he saves and the worship he receives make it somehow worth it. But I did see this, that even if he got nothing back, he would not stop loving ever. Because love is who he is. And it's not a calculated transaction. So in Romans chapter 12, I see that the Lord calls us to that kind of love, this kind of expensive constant giving of ourselves to bless when we are persecuted to pray for our enemies and to never quit giving serving or pouring ourselves out for those inside the church and outside of it whether or not we ever get anything back and i think it's healthy to come to the point of realizing that the commands paul is giving us in romans 12 are actually impossible in human strength this cannot be done we will burn out and we will fall exhausted in a matter of days because we ourselves cannot produce this kind of love any more than we can produce light. But we can channel God's love just as we can reflect his light. 
So the call in Romans 12 is impossible apart from the miracle that Paul lays out in chapters 1 through 11. The miracle of grace and rebirth and the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit so that we no longer live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit of God within us and we are daily plugged in to his love. That's the only way that any of this is going to work. And if we lose that connection, we're toast. So after that conversation with the Lord, I, I did decide I was, I was not going to give up on love, even though as an economic prospect, it's always going to be unfavorable. And I encourage you not to give up on it either. The costs of love are always going to outweigh the benefits, humanly speaking, because the demand so enormously outstrips the supply and the reward for supplying is in fact punishment. So the market could hardly be less favorable. Uh, as an economist. But in another sense, that very reality draws us near to the heart of God himself, because it draws us near to what it means for him to love people, to pour himself out, and to love unlovely people like us. And that then is riches beyond measure. So I'm really struck by this irony that love must be done for no reward, but it cannot be done without receiving infinite reward. So first, love is embattled. Second, love is costly. And now third, the final word of Romans 12 is that love is victorious. So although real love, God's self-giving love, is despised by the world and hated by the world and even violently opposed, it is nevertheless still the only thing that can save the world. And it will save it. Because Paul says in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. And then in verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So then if we are wronged and we strike back, how's that going to work out? Let's go back to the children's sermon, what we were going to say. Is, is that going to accomplish any good in the world? What, comes, what good comes to the world? if we take revenge. Can we rejoice that then they're guilty or punished, that justice is done? No, we really can't. But there's nothing to celebrate through vengeance. No good comes out of it. Paul says that if we take vengeance on our enemies, we merely rob God of his rightful role, and we ourselves give in to evil. That's all that comes of it. Uh, we also deny our enemy the light of the love that could save him. So vengeance is then triply useless. And on the other hand, if we follow Jesus and love our enemies, the result is first, their shame. That's the burning coals on their head. It's a kind of image of shame. But second, there's a real hope for their repentance. Because Paul says there's a real chance that their evil can be overcome with good, winning not just the battle, but also the man. So love is the method by which good overcomes evil. And as we love God and long for his kingdom to come in the world, we cannot do other than stick to his way of love, whatever it might cost us. So in the end, it appears to me there are only two basic stances that we can take toward the world, and there's no neutral ground in between. We can either live in the world lovingly and therefore fight for the triumph of good, or we can live in the world selfishly and therefore protect the persistence of evil. But there's no live and, live and let live option in the middle. 
there's nothing in between because that ignores the inevitable reality of enemies. We are going to face enemies and what we do in that instance will define which side of the fence we fall on. There's never going to be a live or let live option. So our options boil down to this. We can either treat the world as a wartime hospital that's sorely lacking in nurses and choose to roll up our sleeves and do whatever is necessary. That's going to be the basic approach of love. Or we can treat the world as a kind of giant all-you-can-eat buffet that owes us anything it has that we want. And that's the path of selfishness. And those sound like extremely different and opposite approaches to the world. But in the end, it turns out to be the only two attitudes there really are. And we all end up gravitating toward one or the other. We either learn to find meaning in laying down our lives or we are forced to find meaning in just taking whatever we can. So if for no other reason, we stick with our choice of love for lack of a good alternative. But Paul says it is a good choice, not just the right choice. And love will succeed in bringing good's triumph over evil. So his call again is to choose love, to receive the love of God and to live in it, loving as God loves. And I know you guys that most of not all of you have already chosen this, have already committed your lives to doing just that. So my hope today is to cheer you on in that choice to remind you of what a good choice it is. And let's do that. Uh, let's cheer one another on as we get together in our breakout groups now. So let's ask one another, how are you doing in this way of love? Where do you find yourself running low on love? Who is the hardest person in your life for you to love right now? And how can we encourage you and pray for you as you seek to love that person? And then the other question can be, uh, what did you hear from God's word today? that keeps you going, that encourages you on this journey. All right, amen. So you send us off into breakouts now.